Thanks, Ian. Um, if you've got your Bible, if you could open it at Judges chapter 6, and we're going to be reading from verses 11 to 18 today, and it will also run on the screen as well if you want to follow along there. This is Judges chapter 6, verses 11 to 18, and this portion is entitled, The Call of Gideon. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, whilst his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Let me just pray for us before Alan comes to speak. Father God, we just thank you once again for the opportunity for us to come as your sons and your daughters into this place this morning um, to sing your praises and to listen and hear what you have to say to us through your word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you want to communicate with us and that you love us as much as you love us, and we can't even comprehend how much that is. But Lord, we come here with all of the comprehension that we have, and we say thank you. And Lord, we come from various types of places where we've been this week, uh, and Lord, you know what we bring into this room. You know our individual circumstances, you know the work that you are doing in us, and you know the things that you want to say to us. And Lord, we also recognize that we are living currently in difficult days within our own country. Lord, we pray for our politicians at this time. Lord, we pray for unrest at this time, that it will cease. And Lord, ultimately, we are people who pray for revival to come in this land. We're politicians from across every spectrum, and people from across every political spectrum come together under the banner of Jesus, something that is greater than any flag and any policy or set of policies, Lord. And we pray for that in our land. And we also recognize at the minute, Lord, that there is great tension in the world. Lord, we pray for the people of the Ukraine today. Lord, we pray that you will hold back evil in these days and that you will protect them. Lord, we pray for wisdom. And Lord, we pray also this morning, we pray for Vladimir Putin and we pr pray for his government. We pray that the gospel would break out in Moscow in such a way that evil will be withheld and people will turn to Jesus Christ and refrain from this evil that looks to be set upon us. Lord, help us as the song we sung this morning has said, not to be found wanting when it comes to praying, when it comes to 
pleading with you on behalf of all of these difficult situations that we find ourselves in. And Lord, as we come to your word, we pray for Alan. We pray that you'll fill him with your spirit. Lord, we thank you for what he has prepared. We thank you for him, and we thank you for the gift that he has been to Cornerstone Church. We pray you'll just bless him during this time. Speak to us, change us, transform us. And this all for the glory of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Well, thanks, David, for the reading and the welcome, and uh, good morning to uh, everyone. Um, we're thinking over these weeks that I'm uh, with you uh, that of this book of Judges, and the overall title for it is In Search of a Leader, because in some ways that's what's going on. Um, there's crisis after crisis. Uh, various leaders called judges are, are raised up, and uh, they lead for a while, and then the patterns are repeated and, and, and so on. And by the time we get to the end of the book, we realize that the, que the quest for a leader hasn't really been answered. Uh, and, and as we know from the rest of Scripture, that quest is not really going to be answered. It's not actually going to be answered until Jesus reigns. Um, so that's what we're thinking about, this idea of, of the quest of a leader. We've already met a few of the characters. We've met a few of the judges uh, whom God has raised up. And today we're going to be talking about, about Gideon. Um, just during this past week, uh, I was chatting on, on Zoom, um, I suppose obviously, uh, with, with someone I'd never met before uh, who lives in Malaysia. His name is Hua Young, and uh, we were chatting uh, for a podcast that I was recording, uh, and we were talking about a book that he has recently written, and it's a book that's about leadership. Actually, although it's a book about leadership, it's really a book about leadership from a somewhat different angle than we might expect. The title of the book is Leadership or Servanthood. And much of what's going on in Hua Young's book is this question of, are we really, as Christians, are we really called to pursue leadership? And is there not actually a much more fundamental call in the New Testament? And it's a call to discipleship and servanthood. Uh, and that's what the book uh, is really about. And of course, when you think about that kind of idea, leadership or servanthood, maybe you think about Jesus and both how he, uh, how he operated during his ministry and his life, but also some of the things that he taught. Maybe you think about how Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Uh, he took on himself the role of a servant. And at a time when nobody else was volunteering to wash anybody's feet, he's the one who humbled himself and washed the feet of his disciples. Or maybe you think about that time where uh, he's, he's uh, in conversation with his disciples. He's told them what's going to happen, and there's a dispute comes starts to, to break out about which of them is the greatest. And Jesus says to them that actually if you want to be great, you need to be a servant. And if you want to be first, you need to become a slave. And you get this idea of things that, that are turned on their head. And that's something that you find in various parts of Scripture, where God turns things on their head. And what we're going to see today is another one of those, uh, and it does apply to this quest for leaders. Um, but what we're going to see today is another paradox. And the paradox is 
that in weakness there is strength, but in strength there is weakness. In weakness there is strength, but in strength there is weakness. Now, in some ways, if you wanted to just sort of pack up now and close your Bible and go home, as long as you read Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8, I probably don't really need to say very much else. Because the way that the way the story of Gideon is told in those three chapters, and the way the story of Gideon is told um, underlines that lesson. In weakness there is strength, and in strength there is weakness. So the story of Gideon, as I say, it's in these three chapters, uh, and we're going to talk about each of the three, probably say much more about chapter 6 and the early part of the story than we will about the other parts of it. Um, but the story starts in a very familiar, in a very familiar way. If you look back, uh, if you have your Bible in front of you, you look back at the beginning of chapter 6, and we discover that once again the people of Israel do evil. And once again the Lord brings along another nation, this time it's the Midianites, to oppress them. The oppression runs for seven years, and the picture that we're, that's painted for us is a picture where on a regular basis, maybe every year at the time when the crops are being prepared, uh, the Midianites and their allies would come rampaging through the territory of Israel. Uh, they, would, they would plunder the crops, they would plunder the herds, and the Israelites were reduced to having to, to find shelters and live in caves in the mountains and so on. And once again, you begin to see how much the, the, the idea of the cycles in these stories, because once again, as they suffer this oppression, according to verse 6, they cry out to the Lord, and once again, the Lord responds to them. But this time, there's something a bit different about the Lord's response. Now, we've seen Him respond in different, in different ways already, but, but the basic pattern that we expect is that the people cry out, and God responds by raising up a deliverer. Now, last week, we saw there was Deborah uh, who comes alongside the person who would be the military leader, Barak, who would be raised up. Today, we see that in response, an immediate response to the people crying out, He doesn't send them a deliverer, but He sends them a prophet. And when you look at the message that the prophet gives, you, you see that, well, it's a fairly sobering message, because basically it's a message where the Lord is saying to them, you have not obeyed me. And maybe if you're reading this story for the first time and you don't know how the story develops, maybe you look at that and you think to yourself, well, what's going to happen next? Has God's patience finally run out with these people? Is this it? Is it are, are they finished? And God is now saying to them, well, I, I told you this is, how you were to, this is how you were to behave. No other gods before me and so on. Uh, but you have not obeyed me. But if you read a little bit further, despite this warning that comes and despite this rebuke that comes through the prophet, in verse 11, we meet Gideon. Now, as I say, the story's in three chapters. And I want us to think about those three chapters in sort of fairly broad terms. Uh, chapter 6, I would call that encountering the Lord. So we'll see him uh, as, as he encounters God. The angel of the Lord appears, and we discover that God himself is speaking. In chapter 7, it has to do with leading the army. And there's this very unusual battle strategy that he uses against uh, a Midianite army that consisted of 135,000 soldiers. And then in chapter 8, leaving a legacy. All of us leave some kind of legacy behind us. Every leader leaves some kind of legacy behind them. 
and Gideon leaves a legacy. And we'll say just a little bit about that, and we'll see how it was when he was strong that he was actually weak. So chapter 6, Encountering the Lord. Some of you will be familiar a little bit with, with some of the details of this story, um, but we discover that the angel of the Lord appears at a place where Gideon is threshing wheat. So he's going about his harvesting business. He, he's in a wine press because he's, like everybody else, he's trying to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appears. Now, the angel of the Lord appears uh, several dozen times in Scripture, mostly in the Old Testament, uh, several dozen, on several uh, dozen occasions. And one of the very interesting things and one of the mysteries about the angel of the Lord is that there are times when you read about the angel of the Lord and you think, well, okay, an angel's a messenger, so the angel of the Lord is a messenger from God. And yet there are times when the angel of the Lord speaks, it is as though God Himself was speaking. And you'll see that if you compare verse 11, which talks about the angel of the Lord, and verse 14, which talks about the Lord speaking. Um, and one of the scholars, Richard Bockham, has said that frequently in the early books of the Bible, when the figure of the angel of the Lord appears, this angel is not just a messenger of God like most angels, but virtually the presence of God Himself on earth. The angel's presence is God's presence. What the angel says, God says. And this is who appears to Gideon as he's hiding from the Midianites. And he greets him, and it's an unusual greeting because he says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, we'll have to pause on that for a moment um, because there's some strange things about it. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, we'll come to the mighty warrior bit in a moment, but the bit that Gideon picks up on, first of all, is the, um, the, this idea that the Lord is, is with him. And if you look at verse 15, he says, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? Uh, well, no, sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, further up, he, he says, if the Lord is with us, why have all these things happened to us? Why, why have we been handed over into the hands of the Midianites? He's very surprised to think that the Lord is with him because all the evidence is that the Lord is not with them. All the evidence is that the Lord has actually abandoned Israel, which probably underlines the importance of the message that the prophet gave. Because people, are, people like Gideon are saying, well, yeah, we've heard all these stories about God, and it's wonderful what we've read about and what our uh, ancestors have told us about and the stories they've handed down about Egypt and all of the amazing things that God has done. But where is He today? We don't see Him anywhere. And when the prophet speaks, the prophet says, well, I tell you why. You don't, you're not seeing God working. It's because you've turned away from God. And the prophet's message throws light on this situation that they find themselves in. So he's surprised that to hear that the Lord is with him doesn't seem to add up. But then this mighty warrior that God talks about, the angel of the Lord talks about, and then a little later where he says, go in the strength that you have and save Israel. Mighty warrior, go in the strength that you have. And you and I look at that and think, well, he doesn't seem to be much of a mighty warrior, does he? I mean, here he is, he's hiding in the wine press. Understandably, he's hiding in the wine press. Everybody's hiding somewhere, but he's hiding in the wine press and he's going about his business as a farmer. He doesn't seem like a mighty warrior. 
And Gideon probably didn't think that he seemed like a mighty warrior. And he certainly was very puzzled when the Lord says to him, go with the strength that you have and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Because he says, well, well hang on a minute. I think you've got the wrong person here. Because he says, verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Now, remember what I said at the beginning. The lesson, the message that comes through loud and clear in the story of Gideon is, in weakness, there is strength. In strength, there is weakness. And here you have a man who is so aware of his own weakness and his own limitations. Who am I that I could save Israel? What are you talking about? Go in the strength that you have. I don't have any strength. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. And I think there's something remarkable that's happening here, and something that we need to, to try to let it get into our hearts. Because when God addresses Gideon, He does not address him in terms of the limitations that Gideon is so acutely aware of. God addresses Gideon and, I, and, and gives him this, this completely different identity. He doesn't address him in terms of Gideon's identity of himself. I am the weakest, I am the least, my tribe is the least, and so on and so on. God goes beyond that and addresses Gideon in terms of what Gideon will be when the Lord is with him. And I find that's tremendously encouraging, that the Lord is not content simply to look at us the way we find ourselves, perhaps in our weaknesses and in our limitations, in the things that we think, well, there's no way that God would ever be able to use me to do anything. And the Lord is able to look at us and see not who we are in our limitations, but to see who we will be when we allow Him to be with us and when we allow Him to work in us. Now, think about Peter in the New Testament. He becomes such a significant figure in the early church. And that early encounter that he has with Jesus where, he, you know, Jesus is preaching on the shore and he, he uses Peter's boat and they push out a little bit from the land. And, uh, you know, almost a little thank you to Peter. He says, okay, Peter, I take your boat out and, and put down the nets. He catches all these fish. And Peter's so overwhelmed by, by this miracle that he falls down in front of Jesus and he says, Lord, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. As I think someone once said, he realized that the Lord who could see to the bottom of the, who could see to the, bottom of the lake could see to the bottom of his heart. Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you will be catching men. I'm going to make you into a fisher of men. I'm going to take you up. I'm going to use you. The Lord does not see us in the way that we see ourselves when we see ourselves in terms of our own limitations and our own weaknesses. The Lord sees us in terms of what He is able to to make us. And maybe that's an encouragement to some of us here this morning. God says to him, I will be with you, same as he said to Moses. 
Now, Gideon, this becomes a little bit typical of Gideon, but he says to him, well, Lord, if it really is you who's been talking to me, show me a sign. I'll nip off and get something to eat, and you, you wait around, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll present this offering to you. And, of course, he presents the offering, this young goat, and the angel of the Lord just sets fire, and the thing's consumed, and Gideon goes, oh, my it really is the Lord who's been speaking to me, and I am undone. Now, the Lord gives him encouragement, but I want you to notice this. Another important thing about him is that before he's going to go out and lead the army to fight Midian, there's something that he needs to do in his own immediate circumstances, in the circumstances of his family. So, he builds an altar to the Lord, verse 24, but then the Lord says to him, I want you to pull down your father's altar to Baal. Uh, Baal was a name for these Canaanite gods. And you realize, and it's kind of shocking in some ways, that Gideon's own family were caught up in this Baal worship, the Canaanization of even Gideon's family. His father had an altar, and he has to go and pull it down. And he does it, pulls it down. Um, it destroys it, does it by night. And we might look and say, oh, yeah, but he does it by night. Well, at least he does it. But it's true that he does it by night. Why does he do it by night? Because he does it at night because he's, he's afraid. But he does it. Despite his fear, he takes this action. Here he is proving his obedience to God in this domestic setting before he goes out to lead the Israelites in a military campaign. When I think about this, one of the places my mind uh, goes is the story of David, David and Goliath. We all know the story of David and Goliath. We've taught the story of David and Goliath since we were very, very small. And you know that story that David goes out, his, his dad says to him, okay, your brothers, your big brothers are all out fighting, the, you know, fighting in the, the, the battle. I want you to take something out for them, take some food for them, off you go, uh, bring, bring a little picnic with you, and, and bring, bring them some supplies. And they come out, and his older brothers have a very negative view of, of, of David. And David's intrigued to hear what's going on, this whole Goliath thing. And one of his brothers says to him, what are, you, what are you doing here? He's really irritated by David, and he says to David, you know, who did you leave those few sheep with in the desert? Those few sheep. And you can just, you can, you can see the disdain that he has for David. David, why don't you just go back to what those few sheep that you have? This is a man's world here. We're fighting battles all you do is you just, you just look after a few sheep. The interesting thing is that, of course, as you know, it's David who goes out and fights Goliath and so on. And one of the things that he says is, one of the things that, that, that's important for David is this. He had already proved God. Where? Well, when wild animals came to attack the flock, David had been able to deal with them. God had enabled him to deal with them. And I look at that, and again, I see here's someone who proves the reality of the power of God it, just in his everyday work. And some people despised his everyday work. But for David, his everyday work that other people looked down on 
was actually the very place that he began to discover that he could trust God. And it was what he learned there, looking after those few sheep, that he was able to take with him out to face Goliath and see God finish off Goliath. Now, why does all that matter? So, Gideon, tear down the altar before you lead the army, dealing with, really dealing with sin and idolatry that was in his own family, then go out and lead. David, proving God in, in those, uh, what other people thought were small, insignificant places. I, I think also of Timothy. I'm, I'm laboring a point maybe a little bit here, but I think also of Timothy in the New Testament. And we know about Timothy. He was an associate of, associate of Paul. Paul took him along on his missionary journeys. Paul trained him up. He was mentored by Paul and so on. Becomes a significant figure. How, how did he come to Paul's attention? Well, Paul's traveling through and comes to the place where Timothy lives. And it says, and Luke says in, in Acts, that uh, Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers. Timothy had a good reputation in his own local church. And that was the basis on which Paul was able to say, right, well, you come with me and we'll go on a missionary adventure. I think some of us want to have it the other way around. We want to do the big thing, maybe travel overseas and become a famous church planter. We would rather get straight to what we think is the place where the action is really happening. And maybe God has sent to us, yeah, you know, maybe one day you'll get there. But tell you what, start where you are. And when you start where you are, and you prove your obedience to me where you are, and you begin to learn about my faithfulness where you are, then maybe you'll be ready to move on to something else. Some of us just want to get, get, get on with it, don't we? Um, I was thinking and chatting with one or two people a couple of years ago for some work I was doing. You know, if, if you're thinking about young leaders and developing young leaders, what do you look for in, in them? And you know, you come with a whole list of a whole list of qualities. I think top of my list, that if I was looking for it, I think top of my list, one of them, very near the top, would be teachability. That would be one. But another one that someone said to me, another one pointed, that someone pointed out to me was, are they doing stuff where they already are? Faithful at home before he was called out to lead the army. Now, I suppose one of the most famous bits of Gideon then is this bit about, a bit about the fleece. So look down at verse 36. You know, he's, he's been called, he's, he's, he's called the troops together. But before he gets, before he goes, he has one more step. <clears throat> he says, verse 36, said to God, if you will give, save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground around is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And this is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day, squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Hmm, miracle, right? So that ought to be enough. I mean, God had already said, I'm going to be with you. Gideon says, well, I know you've said you're going to be with me, but hey, will you just prove it for me? And here, here's a little sign to do. But verse 39, then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me, Lord. Let me just make one more request. 
And maybe Gideon thought to himself, you know, this whole business of having a, a fleece that's full of, full of water and, a, and the ground dry all around it, well, maybe that's not so special after all, because maybe the fleece has actually just absorbed all the moisture in the ground around it. So let's flip it around the other way, and the real miracle will be the fleece is dry and the ground is wet. So do not be angry with me. Do, let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. <clears throat> Have you ever been told that, that, you know, sometimes if you're trying to find, find out what God wants you to do, you should put out a fleece? You know, you imagine, imagine me, you know, going back a lot of years before I got married. Imagine if I'd said, well, Lord, I, I, if, if you want me to marry Pauline, um, then when I pick up my phone and I look at my WhatsApp messages, let the first message of the day be from Pauline, and then I'll know what I meant to marry her. Well, of course, that wouldn't really work because we got married nearly 40 years ago and there was no such thing as WhatsApp or mobile phones or anything like that, so it wouldn't have worked at all. But, but you get the idea. Maybe some of you actually tried that, yeah? Or, you know, well, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm wondering about going to Switzerland. If you really want me to go to Switzerland, then may it be that when I buy the newspaper this morning that the first story on the front page is all about Switzerland, and then I'll know that you want me to go to Switzerland. But you, you, know, the, you know the kind of thing. And, and maybe we've all done it in different ways. I didn't do that. I don't think I did that. Although I could have, could have done. Um, but we've maybe all done that kind of thing in one, in one way or another. Interesting thing, a couple of interesting things actually about this, is that Gideon's fleece is not told to us as a model of how to seek God's guidance. Gideon's fleece is actually a sign of Gideon's hesitancy to obey God. So Gideon's actually wobbling in his faith. This is not a model. This is Gideon wobbling in his faith. Having said that, isn't God gracious? He could have said, Gideon, look, I've told you. Remember the angel of the Lord thing? Told you, told you then. And I've said I'm going to be with you. Is that not enough for you, Gideon? How much more do you want? Well, I'll, I'll, go, I'll do one more fleece thing for you. And then Gideon comes back. I'm not, I've told you I would do one more. I'm not going to do any more. God, God doesn't do that. God's not like that. God does another. And in fact, when you get into chapter 8, there's a rem another remarkable sign that happens where, where Gideon receives reassurance because he overhears a conversation in the Midianite camp. I'm not have time to go into the detail of that, but, but you can look at that. And you think, wow, you know, Gideon's wobbling, but God meets him. That's the grace of God, to meet us when we wobble in our faith. That's encouraging, isn't it? That's Gideon's encounter with God. Now, we'll not say so much about the other bits, time's rattling on, um, but in chapter 7, we've got Gideon leading the army. Um, the stage is set back in chapter 6, verses 33 and following. The Midianites have arrived with their allies. They've assembled. Gideon has called out his people. Now, there's about 135,000 uh, on the side of the Midianites. Gideon has about 30,000. You think, well, this is going to be some competition, isn't it? You know, Gideon with 30,000 against these Midianites with 135,000. How on earth is that going to work? You say, well, God's going to be with them. Okay. 
Still, you know, that's going to be pretty dramatic if 30,000 could beat 130,000. And then God says to Gideon, verse 2, your army is too big. So he says, first of all, ask anybody who's afraid if they'd like to go home, and two-thirds of the army go. 22,000, off they go, leaves them with 10,000. God says, well, still too many. Think, wow, 10,000 against 135,000 now. This is, this is really getting, this is, this is getting scary. And he says, well, here's the, here's the drinking test, the water, the, the, the water drinking test. And it's, it's this thing about lappers and kneelers. Now, you can read the detail of it there. Uh, you can try to figure out uh, why you think one was better than the other or was one better than the other. And were lappers better, more likely to be good soldiers than, drink, than, than people, the kneelers who got down and put, you know, on their hands and knees to drink and so on. You can, you can try to debate all those kind of things, but, but you, need to, you need to never miss the overall point in verse 2. The overall point in verse 2 is this, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men and I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me my own strength has saved me. So, God says, I, I don't, you know, 30,000, still far too many. 20,000 can go home, leave you with 10, still too many. 300, okay, that'll do. We'll work with 300. And that's what He does. And when you look at the way the battle unfolds, it's weird. You know, where are their swords and weapons? So, they're carrying a jar and inside the jar, there is a torch, like a lantern thing. And in their other hand, they're carrying a trumpet. You think, well, that's a really weird way to, to approach a battle against 135,000 soldiers. How is Gideon ever going to win here? But remember, it's not the strength of Gideon's army. God says, I don't, I don't want a big army because if there's a big army and they come out and fight and win, they're going to say, hey, look how good we are. I want to make this so unlikely that there's only one answer to the question of why on earth you won this battle. 300, with their trumpets in one hand, with their lanterns in the other, and there they go. And when the right time comes, they smash these jars that have the lanterns in them. The lights are there. They blow the trumpets. And the whole army of Midian and, and all these guys, the thousands upon thousands of them, they turn on each other in a blind panic. And all Gideon and his friends have to do is chase them and, and mop it up. He calls out others, and, and they come and, and, and join in the, in the mopping up exercise. Extraordinary, isn't it? Lights inside a jar and trumpets. Tell me this. Think about this. Where else do you read about jars? Maybe clay jars in the Bible? Clay jars with something bright in them? What's in 2 Corinthians, isn't it? Where Paul talks about having this treasure, the light that shines from the gospel. He says, we have it in jars of clay. That's us. We're jars of clay. Why? He says, well, is to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Isn't it extraordinary that the same lesson that God wanted Israel and Gideon to learn, it's not your strength, it's me, is the exact, that's the exact same lesson that Paul 
wants the Corinthians to understand. The strength is not in you, it's in God. Jars of clay. And where else do you read about God being at work through weakness? Well, what about 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh? He talks about his weakness and whatever this thorn in the flesh is. He said, I've asked God on more than one occasion to take it away from me, and God says, no, my grace is sufficient because my strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul remarkably says, so I'll boast in my weaknesses because when I am weak, then I am strong. Same thing that's going on in the story of Gideon. I'd love to know, wouldn't you, whether when Paul was writing Second Corinthians, was he, had he been reading the book of Judges? Had he been, you know, reflecting a little bit on this story uh, of the jars of clay and strength and weakness? The themes are there, aren't they? Now, it's not too much of a, not too much of a leap for us to imagine that, that Paul was, was reading. And this is how God likes to work, to take the weak, the unlikely, the neglected, and lift them up and use them so that people don't look and say, whoa, what a remarkably gifted person that is. But they look and say, no, that's a really ordinary person. Look how amazing God must be. That's why we need to be so careful about it's one of the reasons we need to be so careful about the whole phenomenon of Christian celebrities. You know, we, we have Christian celebrities, whether they're musicians or speakers or writers or whatever, whatever they may be. We, we're so keen to put them on pedestals and say, wow, what an amazing person that is. What if the people through whom God is doing the most work on this planet at this time are people that you and I have never even heard of. Maybe people who live in parts of the world that you and I would never even dream of visiting. The unknowns who in their own countries and in their own cultures are neglected to the bottom of the pile, and God is working powerfully through them. God's not interested in our celebrities. He doesn't need us to be celebrities or to have celebrities to get things done because it's when I am weak, then I am strong. And of course, and this is where we come towards the end, it's when I'm strong, that's when I'm likely to be weak. And so chapter 8 talks about leaving a legacy. It's interesting the way Gideon's character changes through the story. In chapter 8, he's not timid anymore. He's, he's fairly bold. In fact, there's a harsh, even a vindictive streak to Gideon at this point. And eventually, the people come and say, basically say to him, will, will you be our king? And then your son can be the next one, and, and so on down the line. We'll establish a dynasty. The reason they give is because you have rescued us from Midian. See, they've missed the point, haven't they? They're so busy focused on Gideon, they've missed the point that it was God who had done all this. And Gideon, I know the scholars debate this and, and say, you know, this is a bit of an ambiguous response that Gideon makes. And there's even the question of, you know, are, are the people asking him to be king because he's already really behaving like a king? And you notice that he takes the treasures of the kings that he has conquered, turns them into this thing like an ephod. And again, the scholars uh, debate exactly the significance of this. The ephod normally in the Old Testament, in the religion of Israel, it was like a, it was like a sleeveless tunic that was worn by the priest. And it was used 
uh, as a way of, of discerning the guidance of God. And some people think, well, Gideon was, was creating an alternative one. Some people think that actually what Gideon was doing was creating this gold ephod, and he was going to put it on, a, on an image of some kind, and, the, and it was like an alternative God. We're not clear exactly on the details, but I want you to notice what's very clear in the text is that it becomes a snare. It becomes a snare. The people's hearts turn away from God, and they turn to this, what becomes an idolatrous object. And the, the terrible thing about this is that having been used by God to bring about an amazing salvation, Gideon sows the seeds of the next wave of unfaithfulness, and he does it from a position of strength. In weakness, there is strength. Because if God is with us and God's at work, He works through our weakness. His strength is made perfect in weakness. But in strength, there is weakness. There was an Old Testament king whose name was Uzziah. You read about him, uh, obviously, in the, in the books that tell the stories of the kings, and uh, the books of Kings and Chronicles. But you also read about him in, in, in Isaiah. And there's a verse that says this about him. It says, He was greatly helped until he became powerful. But after he became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. You know that old saying, some of you have read it and heard it, um, Lord Acton uh, and his, his observation on power. He said, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power tends to corrupt. Absolutely. Power is a tricky thing, isn't it? It can do strange things to us. And the Bible recognizes that. And it recognizes that it's at those moments when we're at our weakest. When we're, we're actually, as, as, as Ian got us singing at the beginning of the service, I need thee every hour. It's at those moments that we will find strength because we're expressing our dependence on God. But it's at those moments of strength where we're kind of thinking, I can handle all of this. I'm okay, and arrogance settles in, and we blow off course. And maybe particularly as you get a little bit older, and maybe your CV has a few accomplishments on it here and there, it's very tempting to think, well, I've achieved a few things now. And the danger is that once we've achieved a few things or God has used us here and there, start to believe our own publicity. Maybe I'm the one who needs to hear this because I'm one of the oldest people in the room. Um, but we start to believe our own publicity, and we find ourselves in, in a very, very dangerous place because it's in weakness that we really find strength. And it's in our strength that we're actually most vulnerable. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this story, this remarkable story. Lord, You paint a picture of a, of a character who is a remarkable character in lots of ways, but Lord, He's remarkable because You picked Him up 
and saw beyond his limitations and his weakness, and you used him and you worked through him. Father, this is how you work. And for those of us who are followers of your Son, this is how you work. Uh, we've come to have eternal life through the, the apparent weakness and foolishness of the cross. We've come to follow one who came to, to serve, not to be served. And yet, Lord, we so easily become arrogant. Would you forgive us and help us to realize that it's, it's actually when we're weak that we're strong. So would you bless your word to us in Jesus' name.